This is The Guardian. Hi, this is Guardian Australia Reads. I'm Jane Lee. Every week we pick some of The Guardian's best stories and then we read them aloud for you. Today we're introducing you to three incredible Australian women. All of them have pushed back on the expectations and stereotypes so often placed on us. I was 13 when I became enamoured with Chrissy Amphlett. It was 1983, and I'd just started working for our old family friend Vince Lovegrove in the school holidays. In the late 60s, Vince had been a frilly-shirted bubblegum pop singer with the Valentines alongside ACDC's Bon Scott. In the 70s, he'd transitioned to hip music scene journalist, to TV producer, to compare, and now he was managing cutting-edge rock group The Divinals, whose song Boys in Town I was already obsessed with. My first task as his secretary a job title I thought was very glamorous, was to sit on the floor with a pair of scissors working my way through a ceiling-high stack of Go Set and other magazines from the 60s and 70s, cutting out any articles featuring or written by him, of which there were a lot. My next task was to scour a similar-sized stack of current street papers and music press for any mentions of the divinals and file them for him. I must have inhaled Australia's entire rock and roll history and lost in the minutiae of every divinal's detail that garnered a mention, I fell completely under the spell of Christina Amphlett. Being in a band is hard. It's as much an exercise in finding the right chemistry, the tiny sparks, the wordless accord, as it is about musical rapport. When a manager, an outsider, is added to the mix, it takes even more luck for it to work. My own garage rock band, White Trash Mummers, had, for instance, a short-lived situation with an industry dude who tried to get us to take singing lessons and practice synchronised dance moves. We dumped him after a week and combusted not long after. But when the Divinals and Vince found each other, they became like a gang, tight-knit, on the same page. Vince used to stand side of stage and remind Chrissy right before she went on, be loose as a goose, but aggro. Vince always had a great admiration for women who did their own thing. He gave me a copy of Women Who Run With The Wolves for my 17th birthday, which I found equal parts embarrassing and hilarious, but often surreptitiously browsed. Encouraging women to push boundaries was part of who he was. He revealed to me that he'd urged Chrissy to practice those provocative, fierce moves and belligerent expressions in front of a mirror, playing around to see what worked. I was utterly shocked and disappointed by the cold theatrics of it. I felt tricked. I'd been convinced that she just got lost in the moment. I had a lot of rock and roll secrets to learn. He explained that knowing what worked relieved her self-consciousness and gave her the freedom to abandon herself to the music and let the songs lead the way. 
According to Vince, when the band first played live, she would stand up the back of the stage, staring down, too shy to look at the audience. He told me to keep that revelation to myself. Many years, gigs and records later, in her memoir, Pleasure and Pain, Chrissy openly detailed that early difficult process of finding her power on stage and how the only performers she could look towards for guidance on finding a wild and memorable stage style were male. If she was going to be outrageous on stage, she'd be among the first women to do so. Chrissy gave the task her full focus in cahoots with Vince, looking for a unique identifier, something to brand her. She wrote, I needed something I could hide behind that would free me to let loose. After attending an inspirational ACDC concert together, they came up with a look. The splendid mental fuckery of a school tunic over a Peter Pan collar with white blouse, ripped stockings, suspenders and flat shoes. Chrissy had already worn variations of school uniforms on stage, but inspired by Angus Young's infamous schoolboy persona, she combined that look with the attitude of a character she called either the monster or the schoolgirl. It was like putting on armour. Nothing could penetrate her stage persona. She was invincible and free. She said the uniform was me giving the finger to everyone. It gave her licence to unleash a sneering confrontation with the audience to get right up in people's faces. Chrissy had found her niche, her look, her brand, and she ran hard and fast with it. The first gig she performed as the schoolgirl at Bondi's long-gone Astra Hotel blew the crowd away. Vince declared, It was one of the pivotal nights in Australian rock history. Never had there been such an uninhibited performance from an Australian female singer. One of the many perks of knowing Vince was guaranteed free entry to any Divinals gig and I went to as many of them as I could. Soon after my 13th birthday, I witnessed a riveting but fairly terrifying show at the Ruffers Guts Beachside Beer Barn Salinas, where the band appeared to be at each other's throats, launching themselves at one another. Chrissy was doing her thing of grabbing an audience member's bag that had been stashed on the front of the stage and going through it, throwing their tampons around, smearing their lipstick across her face. As the photographer Tony Mott noted, she was unbelievably wild and unpredictable. I often had fears for my safety, her safety and the audience's safety. I also saw the band at the Sydney Cove Tavern, the Governor's Pleasure and even the Belmain Leagues Club and I attended their three-night run at the briefly reopened Tivoli where the ghosts of the Tivoli showgirls would surely have been dancing with delight at Chrissy's stage prowess. I always went alone, getting a taxi there and back, arriving right before the band hit the stage, usually not speaking to anyone. I'd stand a few rows back from the stage and just let the show transport me. Growing up as the daughter of a rock and roller meant it was normal for me to go to gigs all the time, even so young. I'd often meet my dad, Peter, at the Manzel room at 2am after a night out seeing bands so he could walk me home. 
In her memoir, Chrissy declared she worshipped talent and creativity and being a great performer. That was my only church too. She talked about regularly going to watch her idol Wendy Sandington sing at the wildly progressive, incense-drenched Melbourne club, The Thump and Tum, when she was only 16. Watching Blondie's Debbie Harry perform made her want to sing in a band so badly she could taste it. I felt the same watching Chrissy, always letting myself drift away in the ludicrous fantasy that if for some reason she'd be unable to go on stage, Vince would invite me to jump up and cover for her because he knew I knew all the words and moves. I blush now, even to think what might have happened if I'd ever got that opportunity. Chrissy cultivated a reputation for being equally terrifying offstage. The Rock Australia magazine journalist Phil Stafford said, If a reporter had fallen foul of his editor, the most terrible punishment the editor could extract was to send the poor bastard out to interview Chrissy Amphlett. It was thought to be worse than being fed to the lions. But in private, away from the scene, she was sweet and warm, funny and full of stories. She and the Divinals guitarist, Mark McEntee, would come to our house to visit with Vince. My mother, Mouse, a seamstress, made Chrissy's sailor uniform in the What A Life album era. Their arrival would be announced by their trademark big black funeral car rolling up out front. They'd hang around chatting for ages, as people did in those days. Our house, an ever-changing green room of music people coming and going. Chrissy would compliment the vintage dresses I nearly always wore and I'd be thrilled to make her a cup of coffee. She would regale me with vivid, preposterous stories that blew my little mind of being thrown into prison for singing on street corners in Spain, being locked in a cage for her own protection on a bus transporting male prisoners, stealing food to survive in London and standing in the docks at Old Bailey. Her stories were so unbelievable that I decided I must have made them up. I was elated to confirm when I later researched Chrissy that they'd all occurred just as I recalled. She sowed a desire in me to travel, to be a woman of the world, to hold all that experience inside me so I could sing with the same authority and depth she did. Vince would always leave an access all areas pass for me at the door, which I treasured and stuck to my mirror at home. But after the gigs, I rarely went backstage. I felt like the Chrissy who was on stage and present at the gig was not the same Chrissy I'd been lucky enough to hang out with privately. And I felt a weird protective sense of sisterhood in not wanting to blow her cover. I was a teenage schoolgirl and I idolised her, and she knew it. She knew my parents, and she'd have had to be nice to me backstage, and I didn't want that for her. I didn't want her to be normal and sweet at gigs. I liked her just the way she was. That was riveting, terrifying, completely singular, how Chrissy Amphlett changed the game. The reader was Carmelina Diglielmo. 
This was an edited extract from Lovers, Dreamers, Fighters by Lo Carmen, out now through HarperCollins. If you take a big breath and go underwater, what's the furthest you think you could swim? Scientists once thought that humans could swim up to 30 metres in a single breath. But Amber Burke can do more than double that. She's swum deeper than 70 metres. Here's how she does it. Ten years ago, Australian Amber Burke was in her early 20s and backpacking through Egypt when she discovered something astonishing about herself. In a little village on the Sinai Peninsula, she came across a place that taught free diving, underwater diving without any breathing apparatus, and decided to give it a try. I held my breath for four minutes and I dove to 18 metres, says Burke, who is the current women's Australian pool and depth free diving champion. And both of those things... I didn't realise was possible. Burke had been a champion synchronised swimmer when she was a teenager, so she already knew she could hold her breath for several minutes at a time. But discovering free diving just opened my eyes to the possibilities and I just got hooked on a feeling of diving deeper and wanted to see what I was capable of and how deep I could go. By 2018... Burke had established herself as one of the best competitive freedivers in the world and in deep waters off the coast of the Philippines was ready to attempt to break the women's world record in the discipline of constant weight, no fins. Considered one of the most challenging forms of the sport, a diver descends vertically in deep water on a single breath using only muscle strength to propel them downwards. With every metre of descent, the compressive pressure on the body increases, shrinking the spaces that contain air. By 30 metres down, the maximum depth physiologists in the early days of the sport thought humans were capable of reaching, the pressure exerted on the body is four times greater than on the surface and the volume of air inside the body has shrunk to one quarter. Once negative buoyancy is reached, the diver begins to freefall. Burke reached a depth of 73 metres, a world record, but a split-second blackout once she reached the surface disqualified her. If you stay underwater long enough, there's always the chance that your oxygen will drop to a level where your brain will decide to shut down in order to protect itself from brain damage, Burke says. So, in a way, it's a good thing, but frustrating at the end of a long dive. The men's world record for constant weight, no fins, is 102 metres taking 4 minutes and 14 seconds. With fins, it is 131 metres. For the discipline of static apnea, where a competitor doesn't dive but just submerges themselves underwater, the longest breath hold is 11 minutes and 54 seconds. When 100% oxygen is breathed in prior to the attempt, the record is 24 minutes and 37 seconds. 
Dr. Anthony Bain, a vascular physiologist from the University of Windsor in Canada, has researched the physiology of extreme breath-holding, including conducting experiments with elite freedivers, and says many of those at the professional level have larger lung volumes than the average person. Studies in native diving populations, for example the Ba Jiao people in Southeast Asia, have also demonstrated larger spleens, which will theoretically allow for longer breath holds via splenic contraction and release of oxygen-bound red blood cells. Primarily, however, the ability to survive while submerged for a prolonged time is a learned skill. According to Bain, studies suggest that elite freedivers have enhanced their mammalian dive response. Theorised to be an evolutionary adaptation, a vestige from billions of years ago when all life was aquatic, it's a reflex that's triggered when a mammal's face comes into contact with water. It prompts a number of physiological responses that promote survival, such as the slowing of the heart rate and metabolism and a redirection of blood to vital organs, including to the lungs, to bolster them against pressure. While Burke doesn't know if she has any innate physiological differences, she's never been tested, she knows that over a decade of training, she has learned how to better use the space in her lungs. Even at 70 metres down, she can still bring in more air from her lungs. Free diving is gaining popularity as a pastime, with schools popping up along the Australian coastline. But becoming an elite freediver takes patience. Progression is slow. It often takes years to achieve several extra metres in depth as the body becomes accustomed to pressure. When I first dove to 30 metres deep, I really felt a lot of pressure on my body and especially on my chest. It feels like you're being crushed, Burke says. But now, diving to 70 metres, I don't feel that pressure at all. The major adaptation, though, is psychological. Developing a conscious ability to withstand the urge to breathe. According to Bain, an untrained person starts to undergo involuntary breathing movements after no longer than two to three minutes underwater, when the body has barely desaturated with oxygen. Elite freedivers, however, are able to mentally push through this point, holding their breath until they majorly desaturate their blood of oxygen. Among freediving instructors like Clinton Lawrence from the Gold Coast, who is also a clinical psychologist, psychological strategies such as mindfulness are key to training. That is where you observe the thought, I have to breathe, he says. But you just observe it. Yep, there's that thought again. That's okay. And you just keep going. Burke says she enters a meditative state by slowing her breathing before she enters the water. Then, it's about maintaining that relaxed state. And for me, that's really about staying in the moment and not thinking too far into the future 
Because if you think about how long you're planning to stay underwater and how deep you're planning to dive, then it's easy to get overwhelmed and to panic. While the pandemic has stalled most international competitions, Burke is still training. She does long sessions swimming underwater in the pool around four times a week, plus working out in the gym, alongside her work as an electrician and a freediving instructor. Once competition resumes, she'll be back pursuing world records. When I first started, I was like, I didn't even know this was humanly possible. But it's just amazing what humans can do. That was, I didn't even know this was humanly possible. The woman who can descend into the sea on one breath by Bronwyn Adcock. The reader was Rochelle Fong. And earlier this year, we played you an episode featuring more stories of people who can do other superhuman feats, including a woman who cannot forget and another who can see a hundred million colours. We'll put a link to that episode on the Guardian Australia Reads website. South Australian woman Kai Furneaux has been a stunt double for some pretty famous people, Sharon Stone, Jennifer Garner and Anne Hathaway, just to name a few. It's a tough job. She often finds herself pushing her body to its limits. But it wasn't these brushes with fame that got her into this business. It all started with a terrible car accident. Here's Kai Furneaux acting as a stunt double for Sharon Stone in Catwoman. Here's Fanot hunting feral goats with a bow and arrow. Here's Fanot at an Adelaide private school, a sea of yellow and white gingham uniforms on manicured green lawns. Here's Fanot practically sitting on her modem as we talk on WhatsApp, the signal from Outback South Australia sketchy. Her only other option is to perch on the roof of her ute, she says, through the slightly awkward delay down the line. Because we're both from Adelaide, we naturally chat about the school we went to, the same one, Penbrook. Until then, Fano, now 48, had been at a local state school. My parents are like, we've got to get her into a private school. She's never going to pass, she says. She was 19 and headed towards a career in business management or marketing when she broke her back in a car accident. After being bedridden and told she would have only limited mobility, which fortunately turned out not to be the case, she realised she wanted to travel, to be physically challenged and to be outside. Skip to Vancouver where she started training with Kirk Shark, whose website names Scarlett Johansson and Woody Harrelson among his previous clients. Jacques taught Furneaux film fighting, modified kickboxing, taekwondo and weaponry. Fano says it was more like relearning, not learning to fight. Initially, she had no plans to pursue a career in the movies. But after three really long, hard years of working my ass off, an unexpected opportunity arose. I just got lucky, 
because Sharon Stone came to town and needed another five foot eight double who knew kickboxing. That was quite a fast track. I felt incredibly out of my depth. She expected to start out with small bits. You might just run out of the way of a car or something. But soon she was in fight sequences with Halle Berry, Catwoman to Stone's villainous Laurel Hedare. Fanoe spent about 16 years doubling for stars including Jennifer Garner and Anne Hathaway. She won the Taurus World Stunt Award for her work on the set of Thor, doubling for Jamie Alexander who played alongside Chris Hemsworth. After 16 years of bumps and bruises and an incident where she tore her hamstring off the bone, Fanoe was starting to quieten down but she was still doing bits and pieces of stunt work in the United States when her sister called her. It was early 2020. She said, you need to decide today where you're going to be for the next two years. If Australia is where you want to be, you need to be on a flight tomorrow, Fano says. She chose to sit out the pandemic in Australia and her partner Kayla McGrady joined her. Before long, they were shooting a documentary at her cousin's farm near Peterborough, about three hours north of Adelaide. That's where she'd first started hunting goats. I was vegetarian. Then I decided I was going to eat meat. I wanted to do it in the most sustainable way possible, which is hunting your own meat, she says. And I really don't like guns. So I picked up a bow and arrow and it just felt right. I ask for her favourite goat recipe, and she defers to O'Grady's talents. The former chef makes a mean goat curry. He puts the bones in it as well so you get all the marrow and it's really, it's just delicious, she says. Asked how her friends and family have reacted to her goat hunting pastime after her catwoman hunting past, she says, I don't think anyone's surprised at anything I do anymore. I think I'm just wired a little bit differently. I said, yeah, I'm going to get into extreme survival now. Extreme survival, Fano points out, is not like being a doomsday prepper. It's being able to survive off the land, to hunt your own food, to understand nature. The line starts to crackle and fade as Fano talks about upcoming projects, a book due out, the first survival guide of its kind written by a female, another television show, Surviving Extremely. I ask her what she's afraid of. Every time before I get up in front of a big crowd, I'm terrified, she says, acknowledging it's part of the gig to promote her work as a motivational speaker. Here's Kai Fano, Hollywood stunt double, Extreme survivalist, hunter of goats, afraid of public speaking. That was From Adelaide Private School to Hunting Goats, How Sharon Stone's Stunt Double Became a Survivalist by Tori Shepard. The reader was Carmelina Digliello. You can find links to all of today's stories on the Guardian Australia Reads website. This episode was produced by Camilla Hannan, Daniel Simo, Alison Chan, Helen Smith and me, Jane Lee. The executive producers are Gabrielle Jackson and Miles Martignoni. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with a new episode next week. Catch you then.